On Friday, May the 25th this year, Jason Seaman proved that he meant what he said when he promised his students he'd do anything for them. That morning, he just happened to have a basketball in his hand, and uh, a student got up, left the classroom, and came back with two revolvers, fired indiscriminately, and this teacher hurled the basketball at the guy, ran right at him, tackled him to the ground, even after being shot several times himself. That day, that teacher pictured there on the screen, demonstrated by his actions, that he was passionate enough that he would fight for his students. So I want to ask you a question. What would you fight for? And while you're thinking about that, I want to ask you this question. Are you passionate enough about your faith to fight for it? And if you are, how would you go about actually doing that? That's a couple of questions that we're going to be grappling with this evening. Tonight in our sermon series entitled Short Books, Big Message, we're now going to delve into the New Testament. So if you want to get your Bibles, uh, maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone or something, but there's Bible on the end of each pew, why don't you open it up to the book of Jude? probably takes up about a page in your Bible, uh, so it's very easy to miss it, but uh, it's there just before the book of Revelation. This is the book that I want to look at tonight, this short book that nevertheless has a big message. I just want to start by saying something about this guy's name, Jude. If you type Jude into Google, you get lots of images of Jude Law, which for some of you ladies is probably a nice thing. But uh, Jude is an interesting name because it, uh, in the Greek, comes from uh, the name uh, Yodas. And I don't know whether you can see that. Those of you who are a bit closer to other screens might be able to see it. But uh, sometimes it's translated as Judas, and sometimes it's translated as Judah. And we know for a fact that the author of this letter, that's, you know, just, it sits there in our Bibles. I don't know whether you've ever read the letter or whether you've heard a sermon on it, whatever. But you kind of don't give it a second thought. And you hear, you know, me saying something like, you know, Yodas and. It can be translated as Judas or Judah. And you might naturally think that, well, gosh, did the guy who write this then, was he the guy, you know, Judas, Judas Iscariot? It's not the same Judas, um, but I suppose that it's why every major English translation of this letter, when it appears in a Bible, always appears with the name Jude. Because... People don't want him being confused in any way, shape, or form with Judas Iscariot. We understand that. So that's why it appears uh, like that. We can't be 100% certain about the authorship, but there's good evidence that it's actually written by Judas, who had a brother called James that we meet in the New Testament, and another very famous brother. Do you know who that was? Who? Jesus. Some of you are a little bit shy, aren't you? Is the answer Jesus? It sounds like a squirrel, but the answer must be Jesus. You know? It's okay. Yeah, Jesus. So, Jesus had some brothers and sisters. We know he had family. And uh, you can read about that in Matthew chapter 13, for instance. Uh, there was this incident 
And the question has been asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? They're talking about Jesus. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't uh, his brothers James, Joseph, Simon? And there it is, Judas. So most scholars would conclude that it's that Judas, that Yodas, that we're talking about who wrote the letter of Jude. Now, it's fair to say that like uh, the other siblings, uh, if you read elsewhere in the uh, Gospels, you'll know that uh, Jesus' family had their own doubts about Jesus and who exactly he was. If you lived with a brother who was perfect and never did anything wrong, you'd probably quickly resent him. So some of you met my sister this morning. She is practically perfect in every way. I am not. But you can imagine, can't you? If, if you're in Jesus' family and uh, something had happened, somebody had spilt the Rice Krispies or something, and you said, oh, it was Jesus, it was, he started it. Mary and Joseph would have little choice but to go, no, he didn't. It's not the sort of thing you do. Shut your face. They might not have said that bit, but anyway. So it was, it was difficult for the family. And we see this a couple of occasions in the Gospels. You, you read of Jesus' family being really concerned about him. They think he's gone nuts. They think he's got ideas above his station. They, they haven't quite sussed out who he really is. <coughs> now before we read our passage this evening, I just want to share a word of caution with you. Because if you've got the book of Jude open in front of you, you, uh, you may already have seen this. We're going to run into a few verses tonight that are, to put it uh, uh, academically, weird. It's the only word for it. Uh, they refer to events that we just don't have any other record of in Scripture. Uh, and I don't have uh, any time, really, to really get into these in detail. We're going to read about Michael and Moses' bones and the prophecies of Enoch and stuff. But I just want to say this to you. Don't get distracted by those things. Don't just have that caveat in your mind. Because I think this letter is amazing. This may be a short book, but I'm telling you, it's got a big message. And it's a message that we need to hear. So I don't know who's coming to read this evening. Who is it? Come and read to us the whole, don't say this often, the whole of the book. There you go. God bless you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Teresa. As Pastor Mark said, this is the book of Jude, and this verse is 1 to 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immor immortality, immorality sorry, 
and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns give themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander, whatever they do, do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed the prophet into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eaten with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest, darkest has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of the holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times they were scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow the, more, the mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to it eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. 
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, to glory, majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and evermore. Amen. Well done. Is that your first time? Well done. Brilliant. I wouldn't have liked to pronounce Gomorrah on the first time I ever did a reading either. Well done. So there we are. There's uh, the book of Jude. That's it. We'll say grace and go home then, yeah? Back in time for the Strictly Results show, we'll be fine. So Jude. Jude's an interesting fella. He's um, the author. He's the half-brother of Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't make a song and dance of that. It's uh, very interesting. He introduces himself at the start as servant. Just says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how he sees himself. The other important thing to note here as well, I think, in these opening verses, is that the author's clearly addressing his letter to fellow disciples, followers of Jesus. Dear friends, although I, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write to you, blah, blah, blah. And it's then the blah, blah, blah bit that he then reveals why he's writing. He sat down, we're told, with the intention of encouraging everybody. He really wants to encourage his fellow disciples, the fellow believers in Jesus. But he's compelled instead to address a very pressing matter and to encourage people to contend for the faith that had been delivered to them. And that's probably a good time for me just to say to you, the main idea for this evening is this. Faith is worth fighting for, but not fighting about. And I think in this day and age, we need to understand that more and more. Faith is worth fighting for, but not worth fighting about. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I think it's disturbing in today's culture. The church is primarily known for what we're against rather than what we're for. And unfortunately that reputation has often been well deserved because too often we do fight about our faith rather than for it. Well Jude is now going to describe the problems that have prompted him to write this letter. If you look in your Bibles at verses 4 through 11, you'll see basically what's going on. You can see the verses on the screen, but I'll just uh, whiz through them uh, for now. It seems basically like there were some folk who'd worked their way into the church, unnoticed, had come in under the radar, and basically there were a bunch of numpties who were distorting things. They were just saying things that weren't true. And they were perverting the grace of God and using it as an excuse to live, well, how they like. So the idea was, well, you can do what the heck you like. It doesn't matter. You just ask Jesus to forgive you. Everything will be all right. And that's the way they lived. And so Jude uses a number of Old Testament examples to warn his readers, that's not the way it is. That's not the way that this thing works. 
And he describes the kind of damage that these people are doing to the church. Verses 12 and 13, there they are. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They're shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been uh, uh, reserved forever. I love those images. Can you picture them? As you've watched the scenes in Cornwall and in parts of the south coast of Wales over these last couple of days, we can see those things. We can see uprooted trees. We get what that looks like. We get the whole thing about wild waves of the sea. Dramatic pictures on the BBC yesterday from the Cornish coastline showing these waves whipping up. And there it is. That's, that's what we're to see. We're, we're to understand these things, these blemishes at love feasts, these, uh, these, well, these shepherds who've got it all wrong, these clouds without rain, these autumn trees, these waves of the sea, these wanderings. I love it because I get it. Jude's helping people understand just what these people are like. And then at the end of verse 13, uh, he hints at the judgment that these people are going to face. This is very serious stuff. He says the, dark, the, the blackest darkness has been reserved for these people. They're not going to get away with it. They're going to be in trouble. And he continues then with that idea as he goes on in verses 14 through 16. talks about Enoch and that he's prophesied about them. The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict them of the ungodly acts that they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers, I love that, and fault finders. Never have a Baptist grumbler, do you? Or a Baptist fault finder. <laughs> they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And as Jude, con Jude continues, he reminds his readers that none of this should surprise people. I mean, I don't know about you, but as I listened to Theresa reading uh, Jude for us tonight, I couldn't help but think about the world in which we live. Because I think this letter says a lot about the world in which we live. There are lots of people today who have some very wacky, way-out ideas about what it means to be a Christian. There are some people who have some strange ideas about what it means to live in community or in a neighborhood. And there are people who do all kinds of vile things and get up to all sorts of nonsense and, and terrible acts. That's the world in which we live. And this letter, in many ways, finds itself directly translating itself into our culture in this 21st century. And Jude is saying to the people that uh, he's writing to, look, don't be surprised. You've been warned that this would be the case. And we shouldn't be surprised. We've been warned this is going to be the case. In verses 17 through 19, he says, look, just remember what the apostles foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people that divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and don't have the spirit. 
Do you relate to that? That's the world in which we live, isn't it? You know, sometimes you, you come to the Bible and you think, oh, what's this got to say to us today? Well, I think this letter has an awful lot to say to us today. I deliberately wanted to break into what I was sharing with you because it is important that we remember for all the nonsense that's going on around us, for all the stuff that's going on in our world today, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is on the throne and that he will return. Oh, gosh, you've got a front. Uh, is it really? Wow. That's wonderful. Finish now, Linda? Are you embarrassed? Look at this. I don't like the accent very much. We could say something, couldn't we? Dave, that's a phrase you've used about Linda, isn't it? I've turned her off, but she's still speaking. <laughs> well, you better excuse yourself to the toilet, Linda. People want to get home and see the Strictly Results show. My gosh. Have you finished? Well, there you go. Believe me, neither am I in a minute. So it is important to remember that. And, and um, Jude writes to the people and says, look, you know, these people have wormed their way in amongst you and they're, they're wreaking havoc amongst you and they're, they're doing all sorts of stuff. And, you know, you just need to hold on to the fact Jesus is coming back and he'll sort it. And we need to remember that in our world today with all that's going on. But I want to move on because we come to the part of the letter I really want to hone in on tonight because it's where Jude gives us some very practical instructions about how to fight for our faith. And we're focusing on verses 20 through 25. If you want to follow those in your Bibles, uh, that would be great. Um, the lengths our government goes to to avoid counterfeiting is an interesting one today, isn't it? Um, Money. Money's interesting. See, here's a £20 note. Oh, here's an even better example. These blinking things. Oh. The £5 notes are even worse. These are absolutely terrible. And I know it's about they're trying to avoid counterfeits, and they don't want uh, the counterfeiters to be able to replicate them and stuff. Gone are the days, you know, like when I was young, you just put them through a photocopy and you get away with murder. <laughs> don't, don't report me for that. Don't record that, Mark, all right? But uh, today you've got this. I was talking to somebody uh, who used to work in the bank, and they were, they were saying to me, in the banks, it's very interesting, I'm going to put this back so you don't think it's going into my pocket. Um, in the banks, they don't get the clerks to spend a lot of time looking at counterfeits. And I was surprised at that. Because, you know, people must go in and, you know, you take a £20 note into spa with you, and the first thing they do is get a pen and all of this sort of stuff. They must get counterfeits. If you go into the bank, they're not interested in looking at counterfeits at all. What they do with people who work in the banks is that they get them to handle the real thing as much as possible. Because they reckon that by handling the real thing so much, when you come across a counterfeit, you'll get it. You'll know. 
And that's a fantastic and fascinating idea, isn't it? And I think this is something that Jude wants us to understand. The best way to spot fake faith, nonsense Christianity, is to make sure that you are in an environment where the truth is being told. So I'm constantly telling you, don't just take what I'm saying. Go home and check it for yourself. Check the Bible. Talk to people. We have to handle truth so much that it becomes so familiar that when somebody says something that's off-key, we're going, hang on a minute. Are you sure? Now, that's what Jude is saying to us here, I think, in the scripture. He's certainly saying it to his readers of the day. And he wants them to just guard themselves. They, they have these people who snuck in among them. I mean, I, I think most of us would expect Jude to give them some instructions about how to rid the church of these pesky people. Uh, there are a number of places in the New Testament, let's be honest, where that's the advice that's given. How to get rid of them. You, you look at the way Paul writes to some of the churches about what they should do about those who've come in with some dodgy ideas. He wants them booted out. But it's interesting, it's not the approach Jude uses. Instead, he focuses on the idea that we began with earlier. Faith is why worth fighting for, not fighting about. Now you'll remember that Jude begins his letter with a command. He tells the readers that they are to contend for the faith. One of the things I love about uh, his letter is that he doesn't then leave us to wonder about, how on earth do you do that then? I'm not quite sure. In verses 20 through to 23, he gives some very practical instructions, which we're going to look at this evening, about how we can contend for our faith. How can we make sure that it's sound and right? The first thing I want to share with you is this. We need to come. It's very interesting, isn't it? Just go back to what I was saying about Jude. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He had an unfair advantage compared to you and me because he got to hang around with Jesus every day. He got to have breakfast with Jesus. He got to stay up late. I mean, they didn't have PlayStation in those days or whatever. I don't know what they did, but... He got to be around his brother and spend time with him. He didn't need to come to know him like you and I've had to. So Jude had a little bit of an unfair advantage to us. But there came a time, as I shared with you earlier, when certainly Jude and James and other members of the family really started questioning who the heck Jesus was. And they had some very serious doubts about him. By the time we meet James in the book of Acts and Jude now in his own letter, we see that actually they have come to know Jesus. They've come to know him as Lord and Saviour. They've come to know him properly. The other thing I think that we see here is that there's a need for us to commit Sometime after the resurrection, Jude, along with his brother James, not only came to put their faith and their trust in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, they committed themselves to and helped the early church. Commitment is a very, very important thing. Commitment 
doesn't just happen at six o'clock on a Sunday evening. Commitment doesn't just happen when the offertory plate comes around. Here at Mariah, we encourage everyone to make two very, very important commitments. The first, and by far the most important, is to make a personal commitment to Jesus. That's where it all starts. You make a personal... Now, you may have doubts. You may be a bit like Jude, trying to figure out who Jesus is. It's okay. It's a safe place. Come with your doubts. It's fine. Come with your questions. It's okay. It's okay. I'm cool with that. But there comes a point at which you have to come to Jesus, put your faith in him, and then you've got to commit. And commitment is something we don't talk about very much today. And I do believe that commitment is important. I believe that it's important to commit to the church. I think it's biblical. I think it's of huge benefit in terms of your personal spiritual growth. It's benefit to the church as well. So you've got to come, put your faith in Jesus. You've got to commit to the church. And the third thing I think you've got to do is you've got to grow. You've got to grow in your faith. Uh, one of the responsibilities I have within the Baptist Union of Wales is for continuing professional development. Sounds like, oh, it's awesome, isn't it? Is it a... Ministers graduate from Bible school and training colleges and think they've arrived. They think they know it all. You'd never have that in any other profession, would you, Brian? Teachers are never like that at all, are they? No, no. We are all familiar with this in our work environments, that you have to commit to ongoing professional development. You've got to grow. You've got to develop in your nursing. You've got to develop in your teaching, your management skills. In all work, walks and avenues of life, this is something we, we understand. But so often when it comes to our Christian faith, it's like, right, you've committed your life to Jesus, you have been baptized you're in. That's it. And it's like, why aren't we committed to growing in our faith? Maybe if we got the commitment side of things right, we'd get the growing side of things right. And Jude, it's very interesting. For him, growth is a key area. Because the best way to deal with those who are dodgy is to make sure you know more than them. And that you do understand things. So, you know, you might still have questions. You might still have doubts. You might not have it all figured out. But I want to encourage you, commit to growing in your faith. Commit to growing and developing, deepening your understanding. Jude gives us a command in verse 21 that's augmented with three participles that describe how, how you best obey the command. The command's there in the middle of the sentence, verse, uh, in uh, the little passage there, verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in God's love. That's what you've got to do. You keep yourselves in God's love. Remember what he pointed out in verse 1? You know, we are loved in God. We didn't do anything to deserve God's love. It's because you come to Mariah Baptist Church. No, 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 no. You don't deserve for God to love you, but he does. Why? Because he's God. He's full of grace and he's full of mercy. And then uh, Jude, in that little section, back in verses 20 through to 21, he says, okay, you need to keep yourselves in God's love. How do you do that? 
Well, the first thing he says is, you've got to build yourself up in your most holy faith. You've got to grow. You've got to grow in your faith. You can't fight for your faith unless you know what you're fighting for. You know, I travel the country preaching at different churches, and I am shocked. I've got to be honest with you. Shocked by people's lack of understanding about what it's all about. It's like I've walked into a, sorry ladies, a WI convention at times. Or some sort of club or society. There's no, no understanding of, we're here to worship God. We're here to meet with the living God. No. There's no magic formula that will guarantee that you're going to build up your faith. Okay? Just because you start coming to chapel now every Sunday... You know, that's not going to do it. I haven't got a bottle out the back, you know, that I can sprinkle over your tea and coffee when you have it in a minute. That will say, well, you're going to grow in the faith. Now that's it. It doesn't work like that. There are a few basic building blocks that are essential. What are those things? Well, you know them, don't you? Because we've gone through them umpteen times here as a church. We need to read our Bible consistently. Are you reading your Bible? Well, you might say to me, I'm not really a reader. Get it on tape. Get it on CD. Get it on MP3. Listen to it. I think we need to be engaged with the Bible far more. That's what we need to be doing. We need to study it. I really want to encourage you, if you're not in a, in a connect group, or you don't come to our Thursday Bible study, why not? It's a great way to grow in your faith. Connect to a connect group. Get in there. Do some Bible study with other people. Have your questions. Oh, fine. It's okay. If you're free on a Thursday once a month, we have one here. During the day, you can come along. Fine. But we need to be reading the Bible consistently. We need to be studying it on our, on our own and with others. We need to gather together. That's another thing. We need to get, do you know the Church of England now regards regular worship as once a month? Once a month. Is a shock, Linda? Has your phone switched itself off now? She said, Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, because how committed are we? We need to gather together. I don't know about this. It might frighten you. I need you. I really do. I need to be around Christians. So I know what I'm like when I'm not around Christians. And it's a great way to help me grow and stay rooted. And I think the fourth thing is we need to regularly and generously invest our time and our talents and our treasures in the kingdom of God. We've talked about these things so much, but this all helps you grow in your faith. That's what it's all about. How do you keep yourself in God's love? You take responsibility for building yourself up in faith. The second thing he tells us there in that little passage is you pray in the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I, I don't think Jude is actually talking here about speaking in tongues. I think he's talking here about something quite different, actually. I think he's talking about being in the Spirit when we are open to the Lord's Spirit, to the Lord's leading, allowing him to guide and empower us in our thinking, in our praying, in our discerning. You know, Because sometimes, I've got to be honest with you, if I'm not in touch with the Spirit, I make wrong decisions. And when I'm not operating in the Spirit, things that motivate me are not godly. 
and things that energize me are not right. I think this is about operating in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, allowing him to guide us into what to pray, in what's going on. So you keep yourself in God's love, you take responsibility for building yourself up in the faith, you pray in the Holy Spirit. What else does he say there? Do you see it? He says, you need to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I went to the dentist last week. Oh. You walk up and you say, I have an appointment. First thing she says, name, give my name. That'll be 14, I haven't seen a dentist. That'll be 14 pounds. Before I see the dentist, I've got to pay for the privilege of what? Well, it's to pay for the privilege of waiting in the waiting room. Where every magazine is at least three years old. The television is on with the news. On mute. And it's got that blinking banner going on. And I'm like this. I've got my glasses with me. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, waiting rooms. Now, a lot of people think, when they read things like this in the Bible, they think, oh, that's it, see? And that's why a lot of people think Christianity is so boring. And they're just hanging about, like, you know, waiting for Jesus to come back or I'm going to die. There we are. That's not the kind of waiting he's talking about here. That kind of passive waiting that I did in the dentist this week. No, 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 no. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. And uh, he, he's trying to tell them about waiting around until Jesus returns. And he says this to them. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Kick them up the backside. That's what that means. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's not very passive, is it? That's not like looking at Ideal Homes 2003. No, 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 no. And this leads actually into the next thing. Because we then need, well, okay, we come to Jesus, we commit to following him and his church, and we're growing in our faith. What's the next thing we need to do? Well, then we need to serve. We need to serve. That might be doing Operation Christmas Child. Gina, I think it's brilliant what you're doing. And I think one of the lovely stories that blessed me last week when we had the, the mini thing going on was about that 90-year-old lady who isn't able to get out very much. She's stuck at home. And throughout the year, what does she do? Cover shoeboxes with Christmas paper. God bless her. God bless her. Because I buy the pre-done ones. Because wrapping things, not good at. Jude doesn't say much more about serving in the letter. The fact is, he wrote this letter, didn't he? That's what he did. He, he wrote it, and, and it was designed to help these people deal with these blinking awkward squad that had come in and started telling them different things from what they'd been taught by the apostles. So we need to serve. Are you committed? Are you serving? Will you be here to be part of the working party next Saturday? Will you come and help set up for the men's breakfast? These are all things. There's no point just leaving it to other people. It doesn't work. The next thing is we've got to share. 
And Jude goes into quite a lot of detail about that, gives three commands about that, how we're to share our faith, highlights three distinct groups of people. If you look closely at the little passage there, they're all around us. Remember now, he's writing very early on in the history of the church. And yet all of the things he's saying to these people directly correspond to 2018. Because we've got these people around us today, the doubters. He writes in this letter about the doubters. And he says, how should you deal with them? You'd be merciful to those who doubt, he says. You'd be merciful to them. I want to say it again to all of you. If you've got doubts and questions, okay. You may not have all of this sussed. It's fine. It's a safe place for you to come with your doubts and your questions. I love a nice cup of coffee. Let's sit down and have a chat. Come with your questions. It's okay. In our fight for our faith, we're called to do some surprising things. And one of the things is... We're not to do anything with people who doubt, but show them mercy. So important. Jude says that these people don't need a harsh smack around the head. What they need is love and kindness and generosity. It's so important. If you've got doubts, I'd love to talk with you, I'd love to pray with you, I'd love to encourage you. You're not here to be judged. It's okay. The other thing is that the dabblers, it's interesting, isn't it? Look what he says there, the dabblers. You've got to save them by snatching them from the fire. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? Those who fall and pray, perhaps, to the false teaching and who are in danger of rejecting Jesus. You need some radical action there. You've got to reach out to them with the gospel. You've got time to faff about you need to get on with it, and you've got to reach them. And then to the deceived. Look at this. It's very interesting what he says here. Look at this bit. You show mercy to others, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. That's the final group who've given themselves over to false doctrine and moral perversion. You treat them with mercy, but there is a caveat. You notice it there. You do it with fear. Because there is a danger, isn't there, that... If you're not careful, you can get sucked in. And that's the truth. We're all, you know, weak. And I think the point that Jude's trying to make there is, you just be careful because, you know, your clothing can get stained. Your life can get stained. So, I hope you've seen this evening, Jude, 25 verses. We haven't touched the doxology, but I'm going to finish now. Because it's a heck of a book. It's short. It's got a big message. And boy, is it pertinent to us in 2018. It's very important because faith is worth fighting for, not worth fighting about. No point. But we looked at some practical steps tonight as well that we can take so that we can grow in our faith and continue to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in the way we're living. I asked you at the start, are you passionate enough about your faith to be bothered? ask you again are you and if so what are you going to do about it